We continue in a, a series which we started at Easter um, on the resurrection. What did I call it? Um, resurrection and the cosmology of new creation. Very, uh, very uh, seeker friendly and um, accessible. Uh, we're hanging out a lot in 1 Corinthians 15, which this morning our verses are verses 20 through 34. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For, in at, in, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God, <coughs> the Father. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he has accepted the one who put all things and subjected under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? And why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers and sisters, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. The word of the Lord. Lord, we pray that you pour your spirit out upon us. Um, the spirit of resurrection, the spirit of new creation. Uh, may it, your spirit also be the spirit of illumination this morning to teach and to instruct us in the truth of the gospel and the reality of living uh, in the light of your resurrection. We give you thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we've been exploring how Jesus' resurrection from the dead uh, brings into the world what I'm calling a new cosmology. Uh, I've been commenting how uh, resurrection is a very difficult theme um, to understand in the Bible if you're moving past just simply someday we'll be raised from the dead. If you pay attention to the resurrection language that Paul uses, it gets complicated very quickly. And my argument is that part of the reason it gets complicated is because Paul is trying to introduce us to a new cosmology. And if you remember, a cosmology has to do with the big questions about the origins of the universe and the ends of the universe and everything in between. And so when we're, we're thinking about a cosmology, we're thinking in, in, in big picture terms. And so the resurrection isn't just an isolated event in history and then we move on. 
It actually brings something that's new into history that will eventually change history. And that reality is new creation. And so we've been, we've been in a sense, trying to lay out the building blocks of this new creation cosmology. The first Sunday on Easter, we looked at the body in the context of this cosmology. Uh, last Sunday, we looked at the forgiveness of sins. And this Sunday, we reflect on history. History. Um, every cosmology uh, has a history. Um, what is history? You know, when we think about history, we just think about things that happened in the past. But I want to challenge and expand your understanding of history. Actually, when we think about history, um, history has to do with the meaning we make of past events in the light of future expectations. History is the, is the sense we make of, of past and current events in the light of the future, of, of our expectations of the future. Uh, so when we talk about history, we're actually talking about not just the past, we're also talking about the future as well and what is possible. And so we ask these kinds of questions. Historians ask these kinds of questions. Um, theologians do as well. Um, you know, where's history going? Where's history going? How does it progress? Is it a straight line? Or is it like a cycle that repeats itself? Is it moving towards something that is good or something that is higher? Um, how will history come to an end? Um, so history is the name we give to our attempts as human beings to make sense of all the diversity of events and things that happen in our lives, to try to tell a story, to make sense of it, to put it into perspective. That's what history is about, uh, giving a sense of meaning and coherence to a life rather than it just being one thing after another. And so this morning I want us to consider three views of history. Uh, three views of history, tragic history, progressive history, and resurrection history. And when it, when it comes to history and uh, being oriented towards history, history is not like you don't adopt a view of history. You're just like the way you adopt beliefs about the world. Um, history, you might think of as like currents of a river or of an ocean. We don't so much like adopt a view of history as much as we find ourselves in a current. We find ourselves in a stream moving a certain direction. And so, uh, w without realizing it. So this morning, what I want you to just reflect on as I talk about these different understandings of history is, what current am I swimming in? What current is sort of carrying me along in my imagination about the world? And uh, the goal is really to, to help you see and understand what it means as a Christian to be within the current of resurrection history. That's really what we wanna, we're aiming at this morning, to be in the current of resurrection history. Now, Paul is very much concerned with history in this text and with competing understandings of history. He wants the Corinthians to understand how to think about history and their lives in the light of Jesus' resurrection. And some of them are being gripped by a very pessimistic and tragic view of history, which is causing them to live without a sense of moral purpose not just without a sense of moral purpose, but actually to live immorally. And, uh, you know, this is what Paul means. It seems like it doesn't fit within the passage, but in verse 33, um, he says, don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. See, in a way, like, the, the Corinthians are sort of just 
they're being carried along by an understanding of history, which is dominant during this time, which is this, a pagan Greco-Roman view of history, which is that history is this linear thing. It's not a cycle. It's just kind of moving forward. But it's not necessarily progressing towards anything. It just keeps going. And not only is it not progressing towards anything, it's, it's random and it's tragic. It's filled with chance and luck. You know, they're gods, but these gods are not guiding history. They're not taking it somewhere that benefits human beings. Really, again, life is dominated by, by chance and luck. And so one day the gods might look favorably upon you and you might be blessed, and then the next day, for no apparent reason, disaster and calamity comes upon you. And so with this kind of unpredictability and this sense of tragedy and randomness, um, some people end up then just living for the moment. Right? If, if life is tragic and random and we ha can't count on anything in the future, you might as well try to grab life while you can and enjoy it for all that's there. Right? And so this is what's going on here in this passage. And Paul is calling this out within the Corinthians. So when he says, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts in Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink and die tomorrow. In other words, Paul's saying, why risk my life? Why risk my life every day if the dead are not raised? Because if the resurrection doesn't happen, life is just blind chance and luck and ultimately death. Why risk life for something higher? It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, nothing changes and death wins. So party like it's the end of the world. Eat, drink, and be married, for tomorrow we die. So that's the view, that's kind of the tragic view of history that um, is the context that many of the Corinthians embraced. And this is what I'm calling tragic history. And it is still alive and well today, but it has a different sort of, uh, um, different orientation. Um, I think of this, I don't, you know, younger generations they call this YOLO. Is that a thing still? Do people still say YOLO? Like, you only live once, right? You only live once, so just like embrace life for all it is. The baby boomer generation has their own term. It's, it's what I call bucket list history, right? <laughs> bucket list history. In other words, you're going to die soon, so you better just mark off your list. All the things, all those experiences and things you wanted to do, right? Death is around the corner. And I, I actually find that this is the majority of middle class and upper middle class life in America is, is a kind of materialistic consumer version of this tragic history. Life is about accumulating lots of stuff. It's about being comfortable. It's about getting and experiencing cool things. This is to live in a world without windows. This is to of history that doesn't open upwards, but just onwards. And so at the end, death is what greets us, and so you might as well enjoy life while you can, right? And so we end up living then for the next big purchase, or the next uh, home renovation project, or we live for the next big vacation, or we live just for the ne next series of our favorite show on TV, right? Or the next promotion at work. And while on the surface this might seem to be a rather benign and harmless or even optimistic view of history, deep down it's actually built on despair. It's built on despair about the future. 
The, the novelist um, George Bernanos said, the mask of pleasure, stripped of all hypocrisy, is that of anguish. The mask of pleasure, stripped of all hypocrisy, is that of anguish. If death is the final word of history, then the best we can hope for now is that life at least be pleasurable and comfortable before we die. And yet the problem is, is that even this approach to life doesn't really work, right? It doesn't really work. I mean, one of the ironies of life in America is that on the whole, even though many people we have are wealthier, more comfortable, um, our lifespans have increased. What has not decreased, though, is anxiety and depression and despair. Right? There, there's no correlate. I mean, our, the increase of our material comfort in life does not correspond to a decrease of anxiety, fear, and despair. And the problem is this, is that when your life is oriented around pleasure and material comfort, this is a shallow life. It's a shallow life. And we were meant for something deeper. We were meant to swim in the depths of the sea, right? Not flop around <laughs> in shallow pools of water trying to suck oxygen out of stagnant water. According to Paul, resurrection makes history meaningful. It makes our lives meaningful. History is not blind chance and luck. History has purpose. It has direction. And our actions have meaning. We can live with a sense of hopefulness towards the future. Now, I think a lot of times we're tempted to think that doing good, seeking justice, living in a righteous way isn't worth it, right? It's not worth the cost. And many times we try to do the right thing and it seems like we suffer for doing the right thing. It doesn't lead to our happiness. It leads to suffering. But the reality is this, is that living with depth and moral purpose will inevitably bring suffering into your life. And the reason for that is because the world is broken. The world is filled with tragedy. And in one way or another, all of our lives before we die will be marked by tragedy. But it doesn't end in tragedy. It ends with the resurrection of the dead. And that's what it means. What it means is that our lives here and now matter. What we do matters, even when it doesn't turn out as we expect it to turn out. Living lives of moral consequence will not necessarily make you happy, but it will give you meaning, and that's more important. Resurrection means our lives have moral consequence and we don't live in despair towards the future, but with hope. And I think that's important. Resurrection hope. We talk a lot about hope in the resurrection. Resurrection history creates in us a sense of hope towards the future. And you think about hope. Hope is, is, a, is, a, is the orientation of the heart towards the future. But it's, it's also, um, hope is a historical attitude. It's a historical attitude, right? It's a way of interpreting history. It's a way of looking ahead, whether with, not with despair, but with a sense of, of of what can be. And Paul gives us the basis for this hope. In verse 24, he says, then comes the end. Then comes the end. This is how history ends. When Jesus delivers the kingdom to the Father, 
after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. See, this is the basis of our hope. This is the basis of resurrection history. Knowing that the end, all our actions make sense in the light of what is to come. Hope is the heart's orientation towards the future. It means that however incomplete and frustrated our life is, in terms of the pursuit of some good or justice or the loss of loves, these things are not final. They're not irrevocable. For to hope, for to hope, friends, is to live in the world not as it currently is. It is to live in the world as it will someday be. To hope is to live in the world as it will someday be when Jesus Christ returns and brings final and ultimate justice and resurrection and new creation. But, but to live in hope towards the future requires us to live in a place of tension, right? Tension. Um, again, hope is like, um, it's, it's, it's existential tension. It is to be torn, in a sense, in two different directions within history. One direction is uh, the pull towards the old age, the age of Adam, the one um, who entered death, brought death into the world, and Adam's, and the, the world of death has a grip on us that's still very real, right? But the other pull, the pull in the other direction is, is the beginning, right? It's what Paul uses with the term first fruits of Jesus Christ, and it is the new creation, and the cosmology with comes with, with that. We are pulled, in a sense, between these two directions. And the reality is this, it's we, we have to live in this tension, that the Christian life, in a sense, has lived in the overlap between two ages, the old age and the new age. We have a first fruit, we have a taste, but we don't have the full thing there. So again, the way we navigate that tension is through hope. But again, this is hard because it's, not, it's in human nature to reduce tension. <laughs> uh, we don't seek tension out. Uh, everything in us instinctually says, reduce tension, reduce tension. And so one of the ways we uh, reduce the tension is through a tragic view of history where we just give up and say there's nothing that's meaningful, right? This is a tragic view. But there is another way we try to reduce the tension, which brings us to the other, the other view of history, which is progressive history. So the tragic view of history says nothing I do really matters at the end of the day because everything ends in death. The progressive view of history says actually what I do really, really, really matters. Um, it believes that ultimately human beings are responsible for bringing new creation. Um, we are the ones who will bring, in a sense, the second coming and justice into the world. Uh, this, again, is a very optimistic view of history rather than being, pe being pessimistic. Um, this view of history says that history is mostly a straight line. It is a, it's a movement forward of moral, scientific, technological progress that will make the world a better place. Right? This is captured in the phrase that's been popularized, was popularized by Martin Luther King, who said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. 
Now, you've probably heard this, people quote it all the time. In other words, progress, the progress of history is, is, is this inexorable, inevitable march towards more justice, more freedom, more equality. This is the direction of history. And the question then becomes, which side of history are you on, right? Which side of history are you on? This is, again, this is a way of thinking. We ask this question, what side of history will you be on? And when this question is asked, usually what has, we have in mind is there's some culture war issue, such as abortion, <laughs> or um, transgender, or some war that we should be opposing or, or, or supporting, um, environment, any number of issues. The question is often asked, are you on the right side of history on this issue? Because you don't want to end up on the wrong side of history. To resist, you know, with the wrong position on a social or a moral issue is then to put yourself on the wrong side of history. Now, there is a politically liberal version of this, and there is a politically conservative vision of this understanding of history. And as we sometimes think about the culture wars in America, um, we think these are clashing civilizations or clashing views of history. They're actually not. They both belong to the same understanding of progressive history. They just have different understandings of who's on the right side and who's on the wrong side. What they differ over are understandings of freedom and equality and personhood, but they do not at the core differ on the meaning of history. Now you might be wondering, okay, well this sounds kind of like a Christian view of history, right? Don't we believe that history is going to be more just and more, more righteous? What's the problem? You're correct. I mean, this is a kind of view of history that is Christian. Um, in fact, it's a view of history that's only made possible because of Christianity in the Western world. Um, nevertheless, it is a heretical view of history from a Christian perspective. It is a heretical view of history from a Christian perspective. It is basically um, a secularization of a Christian understanding of history. Um, and Paul, in the light of resurrection history, um, there's three ways that it's problematic and heretical. I just want to, this brings us back into resurrection history. There's three problems with this understanding of history. The first is this, is that it assumes that it's human beings and our moral efforts and agency that is the ultimate driver of history. That's the basic assumption of progressive history, that we at the end of the day are in the driver's seat and we are driving history. We are the primary actors of history, not God. The second problem with this understanding of history is this, is that it presumes that we are able to render final judgment within the middle of history about the meaning of justice and righteousness. That we can, in a sense, be our own final judges. We can presume to know what the right side of history is. The third problem is this, is that this understanding of history is a refusal to live within the tension between the old age and the new age. It is a denial, in a sense, of the ongoing reality of death. It is an attempt for us to seize the new age, the fruits of the kingdom of God, without having to wait and hope on God himself to bring it. It's, in a sense, us trying to usher in the new creation, us trying to bring the second coming. 
So those are, those are three uh, problems with this view of history and why it is heretical from a Christian perspective. And the bad fruits of this view of history are many, but I want to talk about two bad fruits from this understanding of history. And the first bad fruit is despair. <laughs> See, when, when you have a progressive view of history that, you know, the moral arc of the universe is going in a certain direction, but then in an election cycle, it goes in the opposite direction. <laughs> this can be cause for despair. Or if you have devoted your life to um, a cause for justice, a worthy one, even in a biblical perspective, but change doesn't come quick enough, or it doesn't come on the terms you like, this can cause for despair. Many have idealistically given their lives to the pursuit of justice, only to find that history is not cooperating. <laughs> history is not cooperating. And again, when we have this sense of the, you know, um, that we can bring justice, this often will leave us um, despairing and cynical when things don't turn out the way we think it should. And this is the problem. The problem with progressive histories is that it underestimates the true depth and reality of evil in the human heart, and it also underestimates the persistence and unyielding reality of death. So that's one of the first bad fruits, right, is, is despair. But the second one sort of flows from it, the second fruit of this view of history, which is violence. When human beings see themselves as the drivers of history, when we see ourselves as being able to render judgment about what is the right and wrong side of history, of what is truly just, this will lead us to justify all kinds of violence in order to achieve the just society. Do you see the logic there? See, when you study the history of revolutionary moments, movements in the modern era, they're movements of justice that leave in their wake, by and large, great acts of violence and atrocities along the way. It begins with the French Revolution, uh, but in the 20th century, it sort of reaches its peak. Um, and there are really too many examples to give, but I just want to draw a couple of them to your attention, right? Nazi Germany, the Soviet Union under Stalin, Maoist China, Castro's Cuba, Vietnam, North Korea, Pol Pot's Cambodia, Ceausescu's <coughs> Romania, Pinochet's Chile. We could just add dozens more examples. These political revolutions, revolutions of justice, um, brought with them millions upon millions of deaths, all carried out in the name of justice. And today, Vladimir Putin's understanding of Russian history and Ukrainian history is yet another version of this heretical history that needs violence in order to realize the just society. Friends, it is not wrong to hope for justice. It is not wrong to work towards justice. It is not wrong to devote our lives to these causes, but Dr. King was right when he said that the arc of the moral universe is long, but bends towards justice. But what he understood better than I think many of the people who quote him is that it is not our own enacted justice. It is not our own achievement of justice as a civilization or society to which it bends. It doesn't bend towards the Republican Party or bend to the Re Democratic Party or bend to some sort of cosmopolitan politics of, it bends 
to the resurrection of the dead and Jesus' second coming. That's where history bends, and that's where justice is achieved. History bends to that point when Jesus delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. Resurrection is the right side of history. And we are powerless to bring about resurrection. This is the one thing we cannot do. We are not the drivers of history. God alone is deriving and directing history. We are not the moral judges of our own history. God and Jesus Christ is our judge. And so we should not presume to know the right side of human history. Truly speaking, we are all on the wrong side of history. All of us. Every nation, every political party, every moral cause, every political affiliation is the wrong side of history because we are on Adam's side. And that side is the history of death. And none of us can bring life from death. Death is our great enemy. Death is our great enemy that which none of us can vanquish. And so our posture in history needs to be one of moral humility and patience as we look beyond ourselves, as we look beyond our own history of death with a posture of hope towards the future, which is resurrection history. Friends, um, which current (laughs) are you traveling in? Which current is... um, pulling you along. Let me give you and remind you to commit to the current of resurrection history and commit in your minds and your hearts Paul's statement of this resurrection history. But to each his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to the God after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Amen. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks and praise um, that at the end of the day, uh, history is not upon our shoulders. It's not upon our shoulders to make everything right. Um, It is not upon our shoulders to understand and interpret rightly all the things that are happening. Um, It is upon your shoulders. And we can have hope and trust and meaning in what we do as, as those who act in history with a sense of purpose, knowing that even though we don't understand so much of our lives and around us, we, we know we don't live in vain, and we know that you, Lord, um, are the right side of history and that you will bring history to a glorious and just conclusion. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.